You're listening to Partnernomics Podcast, where we discuss the art and science of developing successful strategic partnerships. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics solutions, visit Partnernomics.com. All right, so today we are joined by my buddy, Craig Jordison. Craig, how you doing, sir? Awesome. Good to see Always you, great to see you, buddy. <laughs> so Craig is uh, acting COO uh, for Atlantic Food Distributors an awesome company out of Ohio, and, and I'll have Craig share a little bit about, about that. But uh, Craig is uh, an industry expert, an industry, you know, one of those guys that uh, really has spent a lot of time and, and has uh, made great accomplishments within an industry. And uh, his happens to be food services, which I've come to, to learn a lot about over the last couple of years, and it's absolutely fascinating. What happens to get food on our table? But uh, Craig, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for uh, joining me today. My pleasure, Mark. Uh, Craig, if you wouldn't mind, um, I'd like for you just uh, to take a couple minutes to share with us your career, you know, kind of where you've gone. I know you've spent, uh, you know, some, some time in this food services world that, uh, you know, you kind of got your battle scars to, to learn what you know, but share a little bit about your career with us. Sure. So like a lot of people growing up, you know, um, that have the drive to uh, make money, I started out working in a restaurant at a very, very young age and uh, really enjoyed it. I love the service industry. That took me all the way through college uh, uh, up to and including uh, leadership inside of restaurants and management and so on. After that, I went right to food distribution out of college, started out selling, recognized that all I learned in operations gave me uh, a selling proposition inside of working with other independent operators where I had chain experience in how to be more effective in the way they run their restaurant and profitability wise. And, and I was really lucky that um, I was able to build a career in that within five, six years, moved into sales leadership, left the companies of VP of sales, and then of all things, went and bought a restaurant, um, decided that I could take all that experience and, and, uh, and build and the entrepreneur spirit of owning a restaurant, a very difficult enterprise. Um, I owned a restaurant for 10 years. And uh, frankly, yeah, it's a lot of dedication. Everybody hears about the amount of work necessary. But it, what is all the experience prior to that really formed what took us a couple of years to really even figure out how to make money? It's not just about making money. And you find that even in your own enterprise. And it is about the need that you learn in larger uh, companies of systems and processes that, that it's, there's, it's just too dicey in the restaurant industry to make money. Fast forward while I was doing that, <clears throat> had a chance to get some further culinary uh, education. <laughs> of all things, became a, uh, a certified formulary chef working for a company out of Chicago while I owned the restaurant and travel internationally, primarily Brazil and Central America and formulating product to be made for food service in the labs in Brazil and in the plants in Brazil and Central America, and then to work to upstart those lines into food service. Uh, and then I got coaxed to go back in distribution, spent a total of about 21 years at US Foods, great company, learned a lot. Um, there's been a lot of shift in the way the larger broadline food distributors have, have, have changed uh, over the years, fell in love with independent food distribution about 12, 12, 13 years ago, and found myself working with a company that was a cooperative buying group, and in a similar fashion, just really consulting with now independent 
distributors, not just independent operators of food establishments, but actually the people that service those food establishments. Wonderful time there, but missed the being in the game completely. So over the last seven or eight years, spent time with two different companies acting in a COO role with the impact focused on not just sales and marketing, but really heavily emphasized towards the need for a harmonious relationship between the major uh, functions with inside of uh, distribution. If you look at it this way, the average broadline distributor ships uh, anywhere from two to 200 million cases of product a year, and it's pretty much all overnight delivery. So people get to giving you an order at four o'clock in the afternoon in a restaurant and very possibly being delivered to their door at 6 a.m. the next morning. There's a lot of moving parts to this industry. So we're very interdependent between purchasing, operations, and sales, and then finance. So, so I really, really enjoy the role of building the, harm, the harmony, building growth in sales simultaneously, and recognize that experience alone um, wasn't just gonna take me to be able to help others do the same thing. I really kind of felt that way at first. Uh, I've had a chance over the last 15 years to really pick up on, uh, I need help. And uh, that's why I got a chance to meet good people like you. So just uh, interacting with people to get advice, so. Well, Craig, I think one of the things that uh, that really surprised me and that I learned as I dug a little bit more into the food distribution uh, world or food services in general is just really how competitive it is and how low margin it is. And I think that's why, you know, I've I've gained so many insights from you because if I think of one of the most challenging COO or operations roles there there is to have in business today, period. Food services has to be at the top of that list just because it's so competitive. I would love for you to just talk a little bit about the competitive nature and, and really the low margins and the requirement for efficiency in order to survive in that industry. That's a great question. A lot of people, we, those who have been in the industry for this many years really look at, at assumingly uh, of what the cost to, uh, to get into the game is. So of those two to 200 million cases a year that these distributors are shipping out, um, their fill rate on these orders uh, hovers in the 99.5% range. So that means that that product needs to be there on the shelf in preparation to deliver the next morning at a rate of 99.5%. Um, the mistake rate is, is so incrementally low through technologies. People are, it's just pretty amazing. It's a standard of the industry. And then from a margin perspective, there are two ways to look at this, from the sales side, also then from the operations side. From the sales side, here's a, here's, here's a thing that is really a, a true testament. It, it doesn't require a special license to own a restaurant per se, except for a food service establishment license, and it doesn't require a special uh, educational licensing to own a food distributor. The, the end result though is, is that of all these moving parts, Average independent distributor today's EBITDA is in that 2% range. I guess the segments of size, a $75 million company that is lucky to make 2%, a $200 million company that's lucky to make 2 to 3%. And then you get into the big broadliners that are, you know, 25 to 65 billion, and they're pushing to get, you know, the high side of 4% EBITDA. So that seems... Low, a real low to some, it is just the state of the industry. And there's a lot of moving parts 
and factors, just like in the oper operations of a restaurant, they happen to be more variable in a restaurant um, that you have to manage. But the reality is you, you, you have to adapt to the right technology to be able to actually make money in selling. And, the, and let me say this from the sales side. Here's the unfortunate reality to the sales side. Anybody can build a food distributor and go in and start selling food and offloading out, out of a pickup or a 30, 53 foot tractor trailer. And so the operators tend to look at things in a commoditized manner, not just from the products where 25, 30 years ago, a commodity was like margin and oil and ground beef. And now everything is commoditized. The data is too available. The end result is salespeople are also commoditized. They are just the tool to try to get a better price, highly commoditizing and compressing the margins um, of what it takes to make money and how to be successful in food service sales that has changed so dramatically over the course of the last 15 to 20 years. Craig, I'd like to, to chat a little bit about EOS, Entrepreneur Operating System, and traction. And uh, I know you're a big believer in process and you guys are uh, at, at Atlantic are in the process of implementing that. I'd like for you to talk about from a COO's perspective, the importance of process and then you're the integrator. You're playing the integrator role within, uh, within Atlantic. Talk to us a little bit about what that has done and what you believe it will do for the organization. Well, you know, organizational development is, is, is key to a lot of people in this role. They recognize the value of employee engagement. They recognize the value of a strong culture. And I believe process has a lot to do with strong culture. Um, and I'll say it to you this way. When you look at an employee and you did a, just a, uh, if they had a chance just to be completely honest with you, and you asked an employee, hey, how do you know if you had a good week or not? If that is a feeling rather than a measurable, it's one of your first indicators that we have not clearly defined the role responsibility and you've got so many hardworking people, particularly in this side of the industry, that are rowing the boat really, really hard, but you're desperate for alignment against what the big picture looks like to the visionary and what the role is, no matter where you're at in the organization and how those things align. It's the vision of anybody towards the top that would say, how do I make that more clear for people? And does that help in the employee engagement? The answer is absolutely. So, so when I first read Traction, you know, I'd read all the top shelf books that Gina Wickman used to really form, formulate a process around all the best practices that, that, he, that he references. And I had obviously, after reading those books, tried to sprinkle in pieces to this, but I'd never built a true operating system around it. And so EOS not only states the obvious of how this would make an impact in your business, but the biggest difference of this book to others is it shares the how. How, and it gives you the complete platform for implementation that actually, frankly, simplifies things very, 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 very much in a way so that there's clarity to give employees a, a high degree of understanding of, you know, the things employees are looking for is very simple. I wanna feel appreciated. And I'd like to know what I do and what is this impact to making this company successful? That's very much one of the answers that gets flushed out by implementing EOS uh, following that traction play right there. EOS is, it just gives anybody the ability to take a proven set of processes and then overlay them. And it's applicable anywhere from a church setting to a giant business to a mid-scale business. It doesn't matter. 
It really doesn't. Because I've seen it implemented in all three fashions. And you know what? Here's the best thing. It improves employee morale. Why? Because people knows what they know what's expected. One of the buzzwords for many owners and and uh, you know uh, C level type people is accountability. He's like, I want accountability. It's like, you know, I don't have. We need more accountability. And what is? How is it really defined? Well, did you even make it clear what their job was? How can we be held accountable to something that's not absolutely crystal clear either in your job description or is what you're coached to and measured to of how you decide whether you've had a good week or not? If I know that when I go home, I'm tired my, or at the end of the day, I'm wiped out, is that good? If it's not measurable, it's not good. So traction immediately, one of the first things you do is do an organizational checkup and it asks you 20 questions and you rate on a scale and you've got your score and it becomes the very nature to know is traction is implementation actually raising that score because it becomes very evident that um, we have dysfunctions in our system based on the way I have to answer these questions uh, honestly and the goal of traction is the average company I've seen so far scores at about a 40 to 45 out of 100 and the goal in traction is get to 85 to 90. And you can only imagine as an, as an operator or a C-level or an owner, it's like, if I could get more yeses to these answers, yes, my company would be more successful, more profitable, and my employees would be more highly engaged, which is ultimately the answer. Yeah, it's, it's an awesome framework. And we love to, to recommend that to, to different executives using that. Um, Craig, I'd like to shift back a little bit to, to Atlantic and yeah. to try to draw a picture for folks. What exactly is Atlantic and what are the different, I guess I'll call them solutions, but what, is, what does Atlantic do and how does it uh, help out restaurants and, and other customers? Sure. So, so Atlantic is a mid-scale size distribution center in comparison, like many markets for mid-size distributors like ourselves. Our primary competition is the big box. It's like the mom pa uh, restaurant competing against the Chili's. If they're you know a, a full service restaurant with a bar, and so what we have, what we do is to recognize in our marketplace, you know, the operators' needs like others, and then trying to build our our sales and marketing platform, you know, around that. And so what we do is, frankly, we we narrow the bandwidth because in food service there's there's BNI, which is the cafeteria type feeding. There's hospitals, there's schools. Schools represent about 30% of the food service dollar spend in the country. Those are just mind boggling. The, 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 the K-12 and this college and university segment is ginormous. It's not our primary focus, okay? Our primary focus is to sell to restaurant operators independently owned or small emerging chains of restaurants. And so that, that's, our, that's our niche of, of who we serve. In Atlantic, uh, interesting enough, this is a 60 year old company, second generation. Uh, get a chance, I'm blessed to be able to get a chance to work with probably one of the most natural servant leaders I've ever met in our visionary. And the owner, his name is Stan Manalakis, great guy. Um, and he's got a very, I believe, a spot on vision of we're going to make, if we can actually compete head to head against companies 150 times our size overall. Is it even possible? The answer is absolutely it's possible, right? And I always like to look at, I love this analogy because I love analogies. So I look at it this way. If you're dealing with the more, not boutique reality, but can answer to all your needs, and I have a plumbing part break, and I go to the local 
hardware store, when I walk in, I'm greeted. I know what part I need, but I don't know where it's at. They can tell me where it's at. They can take me to it. They can even recommend this one or the other one. And by the way, they can probably even tell me how to put it on. And when I get to the cash register, I look down, it's like, it's really the same place I would have paid at a big box store. And I got all this service to go along with it. That's the analogy of where that mid-size food distributor fits in and competes head-to-head against the big box, U.S. Foods, Cisco, PFG, um, Gordon Food Service are the, are the big players in the marketplace that we compete with. So, Craig, as you know, the world that we live in is, is in partnerships and, you know, forming partnerships with other organizations so that everybody gets uh, an opportunity to be better, right, to get that multiplier effect. And you've had the opportunity to, to go through some of our curriculum and, and some of our courses. But I'd like to, um, to, to talk a little bit about partnerships. And I know that Atlantic, you guys are huge believers in partnerships, and that's why you're getting the success that, that you're getting. Um, and even in, in despite of this rough economic climate that we found ourselves in, you guys continue to, to thrive and outpace your, your competitors or the, the industry. Talk to us a little bit about your philosophy on partnerships and how partnerships have played a role in the development of Atlantic. Yeah, it's a great question because it's, it's multidimensional. Because in, in food service, as a distributor, 95% of them don't make anything. They just buy it and they resell it based and they stock what is either demanded or, or, or what they believe the market needs. Partnerships, I look at in, in three primary areas from a business development perspective, restaurant operators that can get past the idea of looking at us as a commodity um, and just a source for potentially a better price of the exact same item that have the spirit of understanding of partnerships it opens up an arena for mutual profitable growth for both companies in a way that's, that, that really answers to how we compete against our big box distributor competitors. It's also really relevant with inside the vendor or, or service community. There's a shift happening of, of maybe some needs being unmet by the way the, the course that the, the big box has taken. They have all the pieces in place. And they're all integrated into their system and they typically own them. If you're going to really compete head to head, you can't beat them at their own game, but you can find other like-minded partners that you can work together to help grow each other's business. And so the spirit of partnering I got when we were talking, but it's, it's similar to traction in the light that there's a, there is a more formal way and a more formal process to truly understanding each other's needs so well and being so transparent and wiping away the stigma of whether it's in car sales or whatever, wiping all of the, the, the fluff away and just being primarily focused on helping each other grow and be profitable. You know, and then really the third arena is in the vendor community, not the service oriented partners, but in the vendor community, the manufacturing community. I found this to be intriguing in the industry, particularly in the last 15 years. Many independent distributors like ourselves are, are focused on delivering the needs of their food service operators within the brand that is really what, what my restaurant in this entree or appetizer, that's the brand that made me famous. I can't change it, okay? So, so they want that manufacturer branded product. And by the way, the manufacturer also wants that relationship, but there's just way too many operators to have unique relationships with. When we're able to team up with the, the, the vendor, the, the, the manufacturers of the products, what we don't manufacture, 
but the band, the manufacturers of the products and really understand what drives their growth and how do we team up our efforts to help each other grow. It again unleashes something that really benefits our operators and the, and the relationship between the vendor and ourselves. And you know what, again, you can, you can, I'll tell you this, it's, I find it intriguing that before I got a chance to participate in understanding a more formalized fashion in a partnering methodology that you've shared and taught, um, it seemed to make sense, but I didn't have a platform to speak from. Now you, now we have a platform to speak from. And then the last thing I'll say, because I'm excited about it, but the last thing I'll say is, is that don't give up, but, but don't be afraid to walk away, particularly in the business development side of things. One of the first objectives in business development is to understand the nature of the type of person that you're dealing with. And you're trying to flush out, you, you, can, you can spin the idea of partnering and you go, huh, yeah, that's, yep, that's what I want. Does that mean it's a good price? Of course it does, right? And, but they always kind of come back and you're starting to sense where their nature really lies. And are they truly willing to up to and including making a few sacrifices to foster the relationship together? Um, it's where the rubber kind of meets the road and the better we get at really uh, expending the energy against those, uh, those, those partners that we can continue to flush out both on the operator side and the vendor side, the stronger we're going to get as a company because there's a, there's a natural nature to want to do it, but there's always a, sometimes a lack of trust, right? So if trust doesn't exist in this relationship, it can't be a partnership. And sometimes so it's a blind trust, right? You've hit uh, on so many critical <laughs> things, as you know, you know, one of those being the importance to realize that, well, first off, you have to decide, do you want a transaction or do you want a relationship? You know, do you want a long-term symbiotic, mutually beneficial relationship? Really, that's the, the first question that each party has to ask themselves. And then I think as you articulated, one of the biggest mistakes that is made is as we enter these different conversations, we're only looking at it from our lens and the me lens. What's in it for me without understanding the obligation that we should have to provide value to, to that person or that other company. But really, it's that person. Just like you said, it's, it's the relationship. It's the people that are in that and understanding that we have an obligation to provide value to them. And if we do, that's what makes the relationship. That's what makes it long-term symbiotic. It, it makes it mutually beneficial. And then that's how we get these relationships. I know that you guys have folks that, that you've been working with for decades, you know, for a long, long time that, uh, that you've built. And it doesn't come from having a transactional what's in it for me today mentality. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that some of these um, became a natural progression that may have started transactionally, but then back to the relational side of things, you're finding not just uh, unique likes, but a shared uh, passion, um, shared likes and wishes. And then maybe it's building the trust level to the point of offering transparency. I, I just, I, I got to tell you though, it's, it's a little aggravating at the same time. And I'll tell you why. If it takes 10 years to build a partnership, you've missed the boat, okay? So, so I, you, see, you see the push towards, hey, it looks like there's something special going on. What do you say we just stop for a second and talk about it? Because 
I'm willing, you know, I would rather do business in a very transparent manner with everyone we do business with. And for some, it's highly valuable because they would be transparent in arrears. If they have a pain that we don't realize and are trying to cover up with something else and in the end, try to hit their numbers. Um, and we're trying to do the same thing. We're never really co-joining our forces to really help each other grow. So while there's been a 60 year old company, you would make the assumption that there's decades. There's not many in that decades. It's really more in the last five to 10 years, the realization that, that a shared vision between the visionary and myself is, is that there's merit to this concept of, of, of it's, there's more than just a transactional side of, of business together. How do we help each other grow? Craig, innovation plays a, a big role in a lot of the clients that we work with. They're trying to execute you know, some new strategies, pull in some, some new ways to, to grow their business, um, either from a product perspective, a service perspective, a, a, a sales perspective, working through channels or referrals, wherever the case may be. Talk to us a little bit about how innovation has played a role in uh, the development of Atlantic over, let's say, the last five years. Yeah, well, you know, a couple of things. A lot of this has to do with the visionary because I've only been with him for over a year. But, you know, picking up on what he recognized, technology is a big part. Data drives the world. And the food service arena is one of the few places that if you imagine, say, you're a company the size of a Tyson and everybody knows who that company is and, and you know, over $30 billion manufacturing, that's a big manufacturer. And, and realizing that they sell that many cases, we'll call the average case at $40 of what they sell. Imagine how many boxes of product they make to come up with that $30 billion number plus. And to realize they don't know where their product, other than this distributor, where their product is being shipped to, other than the bigger chains and places like that. And, and so data is evolving so quickly in the industry. I'm glad that our owner adopted the need and he's, he's taken, a, some would look at it as, as a leap of needing to be able to assure that we, that, that we will have the latest and greatest technology and being smaller and nimble, we can wait another three months because that next technology release is where we want to pull the trigger and we don't have to plan five years out for a major transition of things. So technology has a lot to do with it. Um, the next piece has really to do with the partnerships you know, with inside of, of the value set that makes us different. Our uniques is not just, you know, the, the extremely high amount of SKUs we offer that are really um, the demanded ones from the, the operators, but the unique of the custom uh, protein distribution manufacturing that we actually own. But it's the way that we offer a concierge service that answers to the needs at the operator level that our big box have taken away out of the industry. I want to go back to the innovation side because those aren't necessarily innovative. They're just answers to what the, what the operator needs. Innovation though really comes out of our, our vision statement and we call it beyond the box. If you think about it, everything that anybody that were, that didn't know anything about food distribution up until this point in the interview realizes, well, there must be a truck back into the building. You put it away you pull it off the shelf, you put it back on a truck and you deliver it to a restaurant. That's absolutely accurate. But beyond that box, our, our strive is through our partnerships is to bring value added services that answer to the needs of operators that don't inherently look at us for because in the, the groove that, of the lane that we've decided to drive in, 
we are looked upon as that box in box out type distributor. And do you, I, I'm glad that you've got this picture painted of these 46 ancillary services that could really actually help me save time, grow my sales and make more money. Wow, that's a great concept, but you know what? You're my food guy. So thanks, but no thanks. I wanna go talk. So, so we have worked really hard up to and including actually adding, you know, taking sales expense away from the transactional side of this and adding support uh, staff to support the, what we call the beyond the box philosophy here of really giving the credibility and making an appointment with a food service operator and going, you know, when's the last time you updated your menus? Do you know we have a solution for that? Did you, did you engineer your menus? When's the last time you did your food costing? How often are you doing inventory for food costs? What if we had a solution for that? What if we had a solution for 85% of the pains that could be housed within the best in class vendors that are, have been handpicked out of this mix to really help you grow profits, grow sales, and be more efficient, saving you time as an operator? Sounds good, but they're really busy and they're focused on transactions. And they're the last people on earth, God bless them, as the restaurant operators they're so motivated by the fear of loss of just raising a price. The prices go up and down every week to them, you guys, seriously. And they put a menu in place and 18 months later, their cheeseburger is still $8.99. And in that time, the, the cost of the main ingredient of the hamburger could have literally changed in the 18 months, 55 times, but their, their price did not change. That's the conundrum they deal with. And sometimes they do have to raise prices. How do I best do that? How do I go about that? How do I handle the complaint from the, the consumer? And how do I get better at what I do? Really, the, bit, the best part is the playbook has been written well by the, by the chains. Our industry is one where chains do more business, but the amount of independent restaurants is twice that in the amount of chain restaurants. But chains do more volume. There's a reason for that. They have systems and processes. They know when to say yes, they know when to say no. And that discipline is what we're trying to bring these value-added solutions. That is a major innovation um, that we want to be a, a real market difference of how we're not just interested in trying to make money by buying and selling a box that fulfills our end of the transaction, but really becoming more of a partner for them. Well, Craig, it was a real joy whenever I had the opportunity to work with you and Stan as we went through uh, one of our programs, one of the cohort programs with different executives talking about the partneronomics uh, framework. And, and I got to learn so much about the food services industry by just listening to you and Stan and just talking about your careers and different experiences that you've had. I'd like for you to just share some advice. So those that are, let's say they're in the food services industry or just in general, um, as it relates to partnerships, what, what is two or three different things that you would offer up to them as some strategies to improve their success rate with partnerships? Yeah, I think that identification of what separates them and then trying to find partners that um, really uh, attribute to the non-transactional piece, but pile on to what they want their differences to be. That's where the, that's where the drive has to be. Look, the global economy that we live in has a big effect in food service. If we see, you know, um, we're no, known as a pork shoulder roast. Well, it's a pork butt in our industry, right? So, but it's a pork shoulder roast. The price up and down that's changed on a weekly basis is more governed by how much we sell to China than how much is sold in the United States. The global economy is very, very heavily interlaced into the United States food service industry 
third largest industry in the United States, right? My advice is, is run at the area of specialty. Really, it's, it's such a broad base, but just to refine what you do best at and do your best to try to stay in your lane of your expertise and pile onto that, that will carve a path for you, whether it's in a career path, the thing that you're most passionate about, the thing that you're best at, continue to develop that, that piece. And then you'll be, as time goes on, and the standards of what a, a food service salesperson looked like 10 years ago is not what it looks like today. And it's definitely not what it's gonna look like in 10 years. Greg, thank you so much for your time, man. Continued success to you. And uh, like I said, man, I really enjoy our, our friendship and look forward to seeing all the great things that you and Stan do there at uh, Atlantic. That's awesome, Mark. Thanks so much. Partnernomics Podcast is brought to you by Partnernomics. Learn how to leverage the power of partnership. To listen to more episodes of Partnernomics Podcast, visit partnernomics.com.